0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: It's been a long time coming, but the Pentagon now has a contract structure in place to provide enterprise cloud computing services to the entire Defense Department. As expected, DOD awarded up to $9 billion worth of contracts to Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Oracle last week. And even though the cloud contracting saga has been going on for more than five years now, in a lot of ways, the new JWCC contract awards are just the end of the beginning. We get more now from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Well, tell us more because people can place orders, you're reporting, but that doesn't mean they can load their stuff into the cloud the next day, does it?
2: It, It's not going to be the next day, and it's not even going to be a few days after that ordering process begins, Tom, it sounds like. That's just one of the changes that that seems to have happened during the past year and a half of this JWCC development process, and I'll, I'll just explain that a little bit briefly. DOD says at the unclassified level, at least, within the next 15 days, they're going to start accepting orders from military services and other defense organizations for services within JWCC. Previously, the way that process was supposed to work, that ordering and task award process was supposed to work, um, was that a lot of it was going to be automated. So the vendors would have had their catalogs and their pricing sort of pre-populated and pre-loaded based on what they submitted to DOD over the past year during this evaluation process. And then this tool called AT-AT would compare the individual requirements that were submitted by the military services or whoever's ordering cloud services and kind of automatically determine which cloud offering best suited that particular requirement. I think they decided that was a little bit too much, a little bit more automation than they were comfortable with. So by the end of this process, they decided they really did need to have more of a human in the loop here. What that's going to mean is that instead of that previous automated quick process that they thought would take around five to 10 days for each order, they're probably looking more like weeks or months for each order, which is a big change, but that's because they want to have humans, a a real DOD source selection team and evaluation team, look at each requirement and decide which product offering is best. And they're going to allow each each of the four cloud service providers to submit individual proposals for each one of these task order um, requirements. So that's going to, you know, obviously elongate the process a little bit. And they still don't know how long each one of these orders is going to take to turn around, but it's definitely not going to be the five to 10 days that they were talking about before.
1: So DISA will provide then human brokering service in effect, but it sounds like this could open every single task order up to protests if that's permissible at that level.
2: It depends, um, that there, there are, is of course a threshold, uh, below which task orders cannot be protested, which is $25 million. So theoretically, if they kept the the value of each one of those task orders below that $25 million threshold, none of them would be subject to protest. But we also don't know exactly how this will work because of the unique contract structure that's involved in JWCC. It's going to operate kind of a lot like a traditional multiple award contract with task order competitions uh, in, in in this latest iteration. But it's not exactly the same thing as you would see on a traditional multiple award contract contract because each company here has their own single award IDIQ contract. So I, I don't think we've got a lot of experience seeing how protests would work in that particular context with in the case where not every vendor is on the exact same contract vehicle.
1: The question then is would each ordering agency or each originator of a task order would they have any power or authority to say, I think Microsoft is the best one for this or Oracle or whatever?
2: That is another thing that's going to be very interesting to watch. And I don't think we know a huge amount about the answers to questions like that. And frankly, I don't think the military services do either. They have obviously been involved in providing input to DoD and DISA as to what this contract structure should look like, but there is still very much a wait and see approach within the military services who of course all have their own cloud contracting vehicles already. And I'll just give you a little example of that. This is Lauren Kanasenberger, the Air Force CIO, speaking at an AFCEA event just last week right after the JWCC awards were announced.
3: We don't yet 100% know what JWCC means what it does mean is we have four cloud providers that we should be able to uh, even more easily buy compute, um, have an easier time interoperating uh, in our compute stack. um, And once it becomes a mature capability, it absolutely could be game changing. But the first step with JWCC, of course, is to stand up multiple levels of classification in a cloud environment and to be able to purchase compute more efficiently. But over time, we do have to build out the enterprise services. We do have to build out the front door. We don't necessarily want all of our teams to come up individually to JWCC and have to figure out how they're going to get their application into the cloud, you know, what ICAM am I using. So we still have... Uh, the different service clouds that are going to have to provide some sort of an integration function.
2: Again, that's Lauren Knossenberger, the Air Force Chief Information Officer. And and Tom, I think you see really very much that same attitude among the military services right now who who see something potentially excited, exciting on the horizon with JWCC, but aren't quite sure how it's going to fit into their operations. I think what you'll see is most of the early adopters are going to be organizations within DoD who don't already have their cloud, con- uh, their own cloud contracting vehicles set up. The military combatant commands, for example, the defense agencies. And, and that's what DoD has said is going to be the primary target audience, out of the gate at least for JWCC. That's where they see the biggest unmet need uh, for the time being.
1: And it looks like it might evolve over time here because some of them are saying, some of the potential customers are saying that – Eventually, there'll be full and open competition, but in the meantime, it's going to be this kind of hybrid of IDIQ, of GWAC, and of task order level operations.
2: Yeah, JWCC itself, of course, will have task orders placed against these four individual IDIQs, but as far as what comes after that, that's a little bit more up in the air than I frankly expected as well. DoD had been saying prior to these awards, and, and we're going back several months now to be fair, they had been saying that they expected to uh, open that full and open competition for a new DoD wide enterprise cloud contract about a year after the initial JWCC awards were announced. When, when they talked to us during a press conference last week, they were less committal than they had been before. The, 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 the attitude now seems to be let's see how JWCC works out, let's see what we want to do beyond the initial three-year base period, whether we want to exercise the the first and second year option periods at all, and then we'll decide what the next follow-on competition for cloud services is going to be. So at this point, there's still no firm timeline for when that next full and open competition is is going to be.
1: And I have to ask: it's only been a few days since the award; they are still in the protest period. And since Jedi was downed by protests, can you say with confidence this thing will be as it is? No protests in sight. I I think it's hard to say anything with a hundred percent confidence, but. I I would say protests
2: of these initial awards would be very surprising at this point. And, and I guess the main reason I think that is there's this principle in law, including in bid protest law, that you, if there's something that you should have known prior to the award or did know prior to the award, prior to the award is the time to to lodge those protests. What we have here is DOD More than a year ago, it announced that it was going to do direct solicitations to these exact four companies. The action that it took last week was really identical to what it was saying it was going to do all along. So I think it's probably pretty likely that if any company did decide they wanted to protest, the issuances of the awards, GAO and the Court of Federal Claims would would kick those out as untimely at this point.
1: And was there any discussion of as the orders come in and the adjudication, if you will, the brokering takes place and the result is arrived at for that particular task order, that that thinking and that data can go into some kind of engine that will power the eventual AT-AT mechanism when they decide to deploy it? Yeah, I think that AT-AT tool is going to kind of
2: evolve over time, and and DOD's imagination as to how it's going to use it has evolved over time. That's that's the tool that I was mentioning at the start of our conversation that they were thinking of using for actually doing the source selections. It's still going to exist and does exist at the the, uh, Defense Information Systems Agency's hosting and compute center, but defense officials are now saying that its main role at this point is going to be to automate the task order writing process. In essence, the acquisition bureaucracy that has to go into actually writing up those task orders every time they decide um, which, uh, which contract vehicle is going to best suit a particular requirement. So that'll speed things up um, a, a little bit in the sense that you won't have to have human beings actually writing the the, um, contract language each and every time. But again, they're not going to be using that for the actual source selections.
1: Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. You bet. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
0: Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest... Lessons that you've learned working with that community. Oh, uh, yeah, almost. Uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they they basically were in direct care and, and I will say and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother and my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. I, I Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics, and you know. We, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I.